We are looking at Judges chapter 6, verse 1 to verse 10. Hopefully you should have an outline when you came in uh, that has the heading, Idolatry. And uh, that's what we are looking at uh, this uh, evening. Now, I recently came across an article online uh, that summarizes each of the books of the Bible in one word. I thought that's interesting. I I should try that. I haven't tried it yet. But I was very happy about that. So Psalms, who wants to guess what? You can summarize Psalms in one word. Praise. Uh, You've read the article. Praise. (laughs) Uh, Isaiah. Glory. (laughs) As I say, that's that's his own interpretation. Philippians, of course, is joy. And there are no prizes for First John, of course. Love. And the article goes on and on. I was very intrigued by this article because I was curious to check what it said about judges. And uh, the word it has was rebels. And that is close to my one word for judges. I think rebels is right as well. But my one word for judges is really, of course, idolatry. Uh, judges, really, uh, the book of Judges is really a contest between the true living God of the Bible and the false idols of Canaan. You remember when we started off Judges, we said that Judges is itself a history of two generations. Judges chapter 1 to chapter 2 verse 5 tells us about the Joshua generation. This is a generation that lived with Joshua and the elders before they died. Uh, They served God faithfully. Uh, Not because everything they did was perfect. We saw that they made some mistakes. But because they never turned to idols. That's the Joshua generation. And then there's all the generations that follow. You can just bracket them together as one entire groupings of generation who were totally opposite the post-Joshua generation. They were the rebels against God. And these generations are summarized in terms of how they behaved in Judges chapter 2, verse 11 to verse 19. It gives a good summary for how that generation behaved. Well, this evening we are starting a new chapter in the life of this idolatrous nation. Uh, We are in Judges chapter 6, verse 1 to 10. Uh, These events we are looking at this evening are taking place 40 years uh, after Deborah and Barak. So four decades have passed. That's where we are in Judges chapter 6. And, and we've seen, we see there, we see in a moment that Israel has returned to idolatry. So the question I want to explore this evening, I want us to look at is this. How should we respond to the presence of idols in the lives of God's people? We need to know the answer to that question because we are God's people today. And like Israel, we are all idol worshippers. So how should we respond to idolatry? Well, we will answer that question by making three observations I just want to make for us this evening uh, briefly. I promise to be brief. And there are three things we see here. The first thing we learn from this passage is that idolatry is persistent. Idolatry never goes away. The idols never go away. They always keep coming back in the lives of God's people. 
We see here that uh, the people of Israel have been enjoying, as I said, four decades of peace with God, their covenant husband. And then, if you like, an old love walks through the door. Look at this uh, one. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. What is this evil they have done? Well, we need to go to verse 10 to know what this evil is. Verse 10 tells us. Look at verse 10. Uh, God's indictment of them through the unknown prophet. God says, And I said to you, I am the Lord your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites, in whose land you dwell, but you have not obeyed my voice. So the evil that Israel has done in verse 1 is that they have returned to idols. They are worshipping man-made idols again. And they do this every time. They did it after God served them under Othaniel. They did it after God served them under Au, the second judge. They did it after Shamgar, of course. And they did it now, they've done it now, after Deborah. Uh, it is amazing that for all that God has done for them, they just cannot resist the enticement of the gods of Canaan. Worshipping idols is addictive. Why is Israel so addicted to worshipping man-made gods rather than the God of Israel? Why? Well, because Israel wants a God it can feel and touch. It wants a God it can actually control. And of course, friends, this is the art of all idolatry in our lives. Idolatry is really about displacing God and enthroning ourselves as number one. Because you see, in creating these gods they can control, they are now in charge of the gods. They can move them around the house, they can do whatever they like. These are gods they own. And of course they can't do that to the God of Israel. And you see, that is the art of idolatry. Idolatry is about really us. It's not so much about the idols. It's about worshipping ourselves, us being in control. And all of us, of course, are idol worshippers. Not because we have little gods at home, but because we live for ourselves rather than God. In New Testament language, we are idolaters. Why? Because we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. In other words, Paul there reminds us in Romans that we live for our glory rather than God's glory. We live for number one rather than the creator of the universe. And as long as we always live for ourselves, we are worshipping ourselves. And as long as we are alive, we're always going to have this pool to worship ourselves. Where we might say, like Lady Gaga says, we are in some way born this way, isn't it? We are born that way in sin. And of course, she uses it in a strange way. But we are born in sin. And sin always is moving us constantly to worship ourselves, to put ourselves first. And that is why idolatry is persistent. Idolatry is persistent because of all of us are born in it and our lives are consumed with living for ourselves rather than God. To put it bluntly, everyone is a self-worshipper. From the youngest age, being number one defines everything we do and say. As young, as we, as we are toddlers, we fight over toys and we 
fight who gets to the bathroom first. I mean, that's, that's what it is about being number one. We are told to be first in the classroom. Uh, we want to be the prettiest girl in the school. We want to win every argument with our neighbors. We want to be promoted first at work. That's life. We strive to be first, to be the best, to be the most powerful, to be the best known, and to be the most loved. And of course, we take great pride in ourselves being like that. Why? Because all of us have this drive to live for ourselves. And so many of the things we do is really adultery. Because many of the things we do is rooted in the belief that I am what matters most. My interests must be pursued above all else. This is true even for, all, for followers of Jesus. Yes, God has given us a new heart, but we still live in this flesh. We still live in a fallen world with its pull and its attraction. And idols are pulling on us, left, right, and center. They're working to make us number one. So what we find is this. We find that we worship ourselves at home. Uh, friends, how many times do we demand respect from our spouses? Why are we demanding respect all the time rather than worrying about us giving it? We're doing that because it's about us. We want everyone around us to acknowledge us as what matters most. We don't just worship ourselves at home, we worship ourselves at work. As the boss takes away a few of our privileges and oil literally breaks loose, gossip, attack, and innuendos. We have rights and we desire they are respected. It's about us. And of course, we worship ourselves at church. Often in our churches, instead of confessing our struggles, we keep up the image that everything is great and Christmas is coming and the presence of God, life is well in my world. We are all pretending when we often come. We, we are now exposing our real selves to one another. Why are we not, why are we struggling confessing our sins? Why are we struggling? Because it's about us. Keeping that idol inside of us. Fed, fed, fed. And we see it in our attitude to the church. Often in our churches, they talk about anything is always about individual rights. The language of the world has come in the church. We talk about what rights we have in the church and how we can make church more comfortable for us. Many of our churches, of course, are dying because of idolatry. Because they've been erected not to spread the gospel, but to make existing members comfortable. Idolatry is not just in our homes. It's not just at work. It's not just in our marriages. It is also in the church. Many of our churches are full of people, so full of ourselves, that there is no room for God and this church at all. We've occupied the entire space. It's just me, myself, and I. This is the case for all of us. I face this temptation. You face this temptation of being the most prime important person in the universe. Idolatry is persistent because all of us love to worship ourselves. So the question is, does it matter? Does it matter? What is the big deal? 
where it does, and that's our second observation. We, we, we are efficient this evening. Point number two. Point number one, idolatry is persistent. I counted that five minutes, so we're, we're doing very well. Point number two, idolatry attracts God's discipline. That's why it matters. It matters because it attracts God's discipline. <coughs> Notice here that as soon as the people of Israel go back to their vomit, so to speak, go back to their sin, God immediately intervenes to remind them of who they are and who God is. Look at this one again. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and, and is telling us, as a consequence of their action, and the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian for seven years. Remember, before Deborah arose, Israel was disciplined through the Canaanites, Jerobin and Sisera. Now God's discipline has come through the Midianites. Who are the Midianites? Well, the Midianites here are a powerful nomadic Bedouins. They move round and round. In fact, when, when do we meet the Midianites first time in the Bible? We meet them, interesting enough, we meet, they are descendants of Abraham's second wife, Keturah. Genesis 25, verse 2. I was surprised about that. They've been there, you know, they come out of Abraham as it were. Don't blame Abraham, of course, but they come out of there. And they, 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 they expand from Keturah, so to speak. They, 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 they grow into this amazing tribe. And the place where they grew to be a nation is really south of Edom. Uh, if you like Israel is here, Edom is here. That's where they grew and became powerful in the north of the Gulf of Aqaba. And over time, what has happened to the Midianites is that they've become really a desert confederation of tribes. So Midianites include many confederations of these Bedouins. It actually includes the Ishmaelites, and they are often in league with the Amalekites, as we'll see later. And over time, it seems they have grown in strength. They have become so powerful at this time. They even have camels with them, which has given them a decisive military advantage against Israel. Look at verse 2 to verse 5 and see what they have done. It says, and the hand of Midian overpowered Israel. And because of Midian, the people of Israel made for themselves the dens that are in the mountains and the curves, the curves and the strongholds. For whenever the Israelites planted crops, the Midianites and the Amalekites, you see, they're in league, and the people of the east would come up against them. They're in league and they would encompass against them and devour the produce of the land as far as Gaza, and leave no sustenance in Israel, and no sheep or ox or donkey. Their shops are completely empty, we might say, for they would come up with their livestock and their tent, they would come like locusts in number. Both they and their camels would not, could not be counted, so that they led waste the land as they came in. We might say the Midianites are really economic terrorists. Israel is living in Mad Max's country. They do everything, they're happy, they've planted the crops, and along comes these guys with their bands of raiders, they take everything, and they leave them with nothing. But notice here how Israel has reacted to the plunder of the Midianites. 
They are facing this threat. How do they react to it? We see that in verse 2. Instead of looking to God, where do they look? They look to themselves. Look at verse 2 again. And the hand of Midian overpowered Israel. And because of Midian, the people of Israel did what? They don't repent. They made for themselves the dens that are in the mountains and the caves and the strongholds. Israel's sin should drive it to repentance instead of lying on its curve, building capabilities. The suffering seems here to have exposed another sin in the lives of the Israelites. Instead of looking to God, they are looking to their own strength to take them through it. We should note in passing here that many of us are just like Israel. When a problem comes, be honest, where do you go first for help? Do you immediately bow down and say, Lord, help? Or do you start saying, who can I call? We need to solve this right now. We tend to look to ourselves, isn't it, to solve the problem. And the reason we do that is because we feel, we feel that we are alone. Uh, when a problem comes, uh, we, 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 we forget that who we are in Jesus. We forget that Jesus is Emmanuel, is God with us. We forget that we are never alone. We forget that God is always there. And so when a problem starts, we go with our feelings rather than the truth of Scripture. I wonder, where in your life are you building dens, curves, and strongholds? Where are you building a stronghold of self-reliance? Some of you are building dens of anger. You feel if you can just shout enough at home at your children or your spouse, they will finally be persuaded that they, will, they, can, they should turn their lives around. You're looking to your own resources. Some of you are building curves of wisdom. And you feel that if you know a lot, then you're okay. Knowledge is your protection rather than God. So you spend a lot of time trying to know about problems. Because you think that's where the answer lies. The answer lies with the Lord. And some of us, I put my hands up on this one, are building strongholds of self-righteousness. When you are confronted with sin by people around us, what do we do first? We immediately defend ourselves. Friends, self-reliance in our society is a virtue, but not in the kingdom of God. Living in the curve of self-reliance cuts us off from the work of God. God doesn't want us to be doing what the Israelites are doing, looking to themselves. You see, in the end, friends, relying on ourselves is simply another form of idolatry. It is, because self-reliance is idolatry. And it ultimately cuts us off from God. And God won't stand for idolatry. So what happens to Israel? Israel gets crushed in the end. It's, it's, look at verse 6. And Israel was brought very low. I mean, that's the Bible saying that they are walking with shame written on their heads. 
Israel was brought very low because of Midian. Everybody is looking at them and is laughing at them. Look at these guys. They are depending on themselves and is hopeless. They can't defend themselves against a bunch of Bedouins, so to speak. It seems their pride, their self-worship and self-reliance has brought them only shame and they find that when they're in that condition, the only way they can run, eventually they get it. They must go to God. Look at verse 6, how it ends. And the people of Israel, on their knees, cried out for help to the Lord. Israel has discovered that idolatry attracts God's discipline because God will not have any rivals in the life of his children. If you genuinely belong to God, God will not allow you indefinitely to wallow in idols. He will painfully work to discipline you. And very often that discipline God is undertaking, sometimes it's unclear to us. We, we don't really know always why certain things are happening. But what we can know is that whatever situation you are facing, you can be sure it's about drawing you closer to God. I need to remember that as a, as a pastor. Whatever situation. I mean, I have a phrase that that problem, of course, is a tool of sanctification. And it's true, whatever problem it is, it's there to draw us closer to Christ. And that's the same for you. Everything God is, is up in your life, God is wants you to put the attention on him. So the question, friends, is this. If God is working to surgically remove any idols from our life, how should we respond to God's discipline? in this way. Well, that takes us to the final point this evening. We must obey. And we must obey something specific. We must obey the word of God. So the first point is what? Idolatry is persistent. The second point is, does it matter? Yes, it matters because idolatry attracts God's discipline. So how then should we respond to God's discipline? Well, the final point is that we must obey the word of God. Notice here that the people of Israel now do what? They cry out crocodile tears. Uh, do you, know, you, you know that phrase, don't you? Not real tears, fake tears. Uh, they are crying out before God. They haven't repented. And God amazingly responds to them. But not as they expect. Look at verse 7 again. Verse 7 to verse 8. Uh, parts of verse 8. It says, when the people of Israel, when, very important, when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, on account of the Midianites, the Lord sent a prophet to the people of Israel. Just like in Judges chapter 4, do you remember when Israel was being oppressed by the Canaanites, God's immediate answer was not deliverance. What did God do? He sent them Deborah, the word of God to comfort them, so to speak. And the word of God he has come for Israel. What is the word of God saying through this unknown prophet? Thank God for unknown workers of the gospel. He's come here. We don't know his name, but he's doing the work of God. And the bonus application is that we should be comfortable serving the Lord anonymously as this prophet does. But notice what the prophet says in verse 8. The Lord sent a prophet, this unknown prophet, the people of Israel. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, I led you up from Egypt. He says, I took you out of bondage. 
and brought you out of the house of bondage, and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all who oppressed you, and drove them out before you and gave you their land. God is like, I did everything for you. Everything you ever wanted, I did it for you. And verse 10 says this, And I said to you, I am the Lord your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. We stop there. We notice that the unknown prophet is saying that God has kept his side of the bargain. But notice what's happened. Israel has not kept their side of the bargain. They have broken the covenant by turning to idols. Look at verse 10, how it ends. But you have not obeyed my voice. Now God is reminding them of these painful truths that what is God getting at here? He's saying, look, I don't want your crocodile tears. I want true repentance. Do you see what you have done? We need to pause on that for a minute. God demands genuine repentance from our idols, from living for ourselves, from self-worship. What is repentance? Because I think many of us don't get this. We use repentance only, but what do we mean when we tell, when God says repent? Repentance is not feeling bad. Israel feels bad for what they have done, but they have not repented. And repentance is not admitting we are wrong and we keep going like politicians like doing. You know, they tell you, it's a complete mess. What was bad, but then we have to do it anyway because we've already spent half of the money. That's not repentance. And we see Israel is not going to repent because even with the rise of Gideon, and we're looking forward to seeing Gideon next week, but even the rise of Gideon, we see there are problems there. Because even Gideon himself doesn't get it. I don't want to say too much about that. But when the angel of the Lord appears to Gideon, we see Gideon is still accusing God. Where are you? I thought you were with us. So they don't get it at all. They've cried, but they have not got it. Repentance also is not blame shifting. Uh, it's not saying something bad happened, but it was their fault. That's not repentance. Repentance is not even compensation. Because often when people are, are, are reminded of their sin, what they try and do is they try and do more. That's not repentance. It's not trying to aim your way to God. No. Repentance, as you know, I like to say, is being on a train and finding out you are heading in the wrong direction. You get off, get on the right platform, head in a different direction. It is not just saying we are sorry about catching the train or blaming Transport for London or whoever runs the train. No. It is changing direction and heading in the opposite direction. And this is what God wants them to do. And we'll see next week that what God is really after is for them to break down the, the, the altars of Baal. And we'll see Gideon begin to begin in that work. And you know, God knows that they cannot do that though without hearing the word of God again. That's at, that's at the heart of this. You see, they cannot turn from their idols without God's word. They need to be reminded of this truth afresh. And this is why God has sent this unknown prophet. God is making it clear that for his people to defeat idols, they must hear his word again. 
The problem is that at this time in Israel, the Bible is an antique. It's been stored. They never read it. So to speak, the law of Moses is like buried somewhere. They've forgotten it. And God is summoning them to remember the laws is given them as part of the covenant so that they can understand. They never read their Bibles. And if you like, once they get out of the door of the church, they never, so to speak, sorry, open it again until tragedy strikes. So let us underline this truth here. The only way for you to defeat idols in your life is to become a creature of the world. You must study the Bible, you must know the Bible, and you must obey it. The Bible must not be gathering dust in our homes. It must be part of us. We must love it every single moment, study it, digest it. Why? Because the Bible is milk for your soul. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 2 tells us that. It is the seed for your faith. Luke 8, verse 11 reminds us that. It is a light for your path. Psalm 119, verse 105 tells us that. We know when you read the Bible, it brings joy. How do we know? Because Jeremiah 15, verse 16 tells us that. We know when you study and memorize it, it purifies your heart. How do we know? Because Psalm 119 verse 11 tells us that. How can a young man keep his words pure? I have hid the word in my heart so that I may not sin against you. We know when you quote the Bible, it defeats your enemies. How do we know that? Because Ephesians 6 verse 17 tells us. The word of God is the sword of the spirit. We know that when you meditate on it like Joshua, it brings success. How do we know? Because Joshua verse 1 verse 8 tells us that. Meditate on it so the Lord can direct your steps. We can go on, but the point is clear. That the word of God is what Israel needed to hear. It's what Israel needed to digest. And it's what we need here now to be a creature, to be a creature of the word, to know it every day. And here is the good news. You have a huge advantage over Israel. For one thing, you have the Bible in your hands. You have the Bible in your hands. At least they have an excuse, they didn't have that. They have to go to some priest to tell them or hear the word of a prophet. But you have it. But that's not the advantage I'm talking about. The big advantage is, you see, is that you have something they didn't have. Why does Israel keep coming back to idols? Why are they failing to obey the spoken word of God? It's not just bad memory. The memory, the bad memory is a symptom of something else. Their poor memory to remember is a symptom of their nature. They are sinners. Israel is crying out for the Messiah to come and change their hearts. We might say what Israel lacked is that they, 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 what they really needed was a heart transplant. They needed a heart that was able to receive the word, digest it, and store it. 
They needed a new heart from God that can obey. They needed the Messiah to come and give them this new heart. And the good news of the Bible is that if you're trusting in Jesus this evening, God has given you this new heart. And His Holy Spirit is working in your heart to guide you every day. So, if you are in Jesus, you have a huge advantage. But more than that, you have real hope against idols. Because Jesus is your Emmanuel. You have a judge who never dies. You know, all these judges died and died and died. You see, the, the, the pattern in Israel is that they get this judge. They are okay with the judge. When the judge dies, and then everything else goes back to where it was. But in Jesus, you have an eternal judge who lives within the walls of your heart. And so, he's always by your side. I don't know what idols you are currently worshipping. Sex, money, family. I don't know what dens and curves and strongholds you are building. Well, God knows your heart, and in this passage, He's not only commanding you to surrender those idols to Christ and start afresh with Him, He has given you a new heart if you're trusting in Jesus. He's given you a heart that can really obey. And he's given you the word. He's saying obey the word. Memorize it. Apply it. And obey it. And if you do that, you will continue to grow to experience victory of idols. And so our prayer this evening is that the Lord enables us to take his word to heart. Amen.